Will you join me in reading from Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 35 and following. Uh, I don't think I'm on. Am I on? Can you hear me? Okay. Verse 35 of chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark. A day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind, broke, uh, the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It was a dark and stormy night. Jesus uh, and the disciples left from the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, began to make their way across the sea, probably to the extreme southern tip of uh, of that uh, body of water. It had been a long day for our Lord, a day of teaching and healing. The uh, so-called seed parables that are uh, given to us in this chapter were uh, taught to the people. He healed... uh, a leper, he healed the centurion's servant, he healed Peter's mother-in-law, he was engaged uh, in a bit of a confrontation with his family, they thought he had taken leave of his senses, they wanted to get him off the street, those uh, types of situations are always difficult, and uh, our Lord was uh, just drained, he was worn out. So he said to his disciples, let's go to the other side. We're not told precisely why he wanted to leave. Perhaps he just needed some time by himself. He uh, very often needed to get away from people. Uh, I think we can all identify when things get to be too much and people get to be too many. We, uh, we want to get away for a while and, and uh, get back in touch with the Father, spend some time alone with him, and perhaps that was uh, his intention. So uh, he went into the boat, and he began to look for a place to uh, go to sleep. One old commentator I I read this past uh, week said that he wanted to go to sleep to demonstrate that he was a man. I don't uh, think that was his motivation at all. I think he wanted to go to sleep because he was a man. He was not only fully God, he was also fully human, and he experienced all the human feelings and emotions that we experience, he was, uh, he became hungry, thirsty, tired, heartbroken. He experienced all of the emotions that uh, we experience, and he was, uh, he was woofed. It had been a long day. He was looking for a place to uh, take a nap. So um, Mark tells us that he went to the back of the boat, and he lay down on the cushion, that's the way Mark puts it. A couple of years ago, some of us were in Israel together, and we happened to be in the northern part of uh, Israel, uh, near the Sea of Galilee, and we were told that they had just uh, discovered one of these boats from the first century, from the time of Jesus. 
uh, young uh, kibbutznik from uh, Nafkinasor was sort of a amateur archaeologist, and he was out looking for artifacts. The uh, Sea of Galilee was way down that year. It had been a drought year, and it was lower than anyone could ever remember. And he was out looking for Roman coins and various other artifacts on the beach. And he came across uh, a sunken boat from this uh, period. It had been buried in the mud, and they were digging it up when we were there. And I just this past week read a, a report on that find. Uh, it was a boat uh, about 28 or 29 feet long, about 8 to 10 feet wide, uh, very much like the boat on which, uh, uh, in which we find the Lord and, and the disciples in this story. And across the back of this boat, just as in, this, in the boat that our Lord was in, there's a, a stern deck, a flat deck on which they stored their nets. The nets were, were long and bulky. Uh, most of the seine nets that they used were about 150 feet long, and when they were wrapped up, there was a lot of bulk, and so they needed a place to store them, and they kept them on this flat deck. And underneath the stern uh, deck was a, an open area where they kept the ballast bags. They had large sandbags that weighed about 50 pounds each, and uh, they piled them up back there. They were used to trim the boat when they were uh, underway, and and our Lord uh, was looking for a place where he could get, get away from the weather. Perhaps it had already started to to rain or the wind was blowing and so he crept under this deck and re- rearranged uh, some of the sandbags and and lay down and and went to sleep. Uh, the sea of Galilee is a fairly large body of water about 13 miles long, 7 miles wide, beautiful uh, place even today. The water is uh, crystal clear and blue and lush vegetation around the uh, around the lake. But it's also an extremely dangerous lake, still is today, for uh, sailors, because it's down in a deep depression. The Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. It's down in the Jordan Rift. And uh, during periods of uh, low pressure, the winds uh, zip down the canyons and swirl around uh, the lake and, and uh, can turn it into a maelstrom in just a few moments' time. Uh, fishermen, sailors were well aware of that phenomenon and, and often uh, uh, could anticipate it. But on this particular occasion, they, uh, they, they, were, they were unable to do so. They must have been right out in the middle of, of the lake. There was simply no way to get to shore when this uh, wind struck and began to drive them toward the south. They were uh, rowing, I'm sure, like uh, crazy until their hands were raw. And uh, they were, uh, the rest of the disciples were bailing. Normally there were four oarsmen, and everyone else, I'm sure, had a coffee can. And they were uh, bailing water out of the boat, and the waves were breaking over the gunnels of the little, little ship, and it was about to go down. They must have been reluctant to awaken the Lord. They knew how tired he was, but eventually they made their way back under the deck and shook him awake, and uh, they said, uh, Lord... Don't, uh, don't you care? Don't you care that we're drowning? That, that's the question we always ask when uh, our times get perilous. When it looks as though we may go down with the ship, we wonder if our Lord cares. When domestic or money or personal problems strike us, we wonder if, uh, if it really matters to the Lord. Is he in the boat with us? Is he asleep? Uh, does it matter to him that, that we're in, in deep trouble? As the uh, hymn writer asked the question, does Jesus care when our way is dark? 
with nameless dread and fear. When the daylight fades into deep night shades, does he care enough to be near? The hymn writer himself answers the question, Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. And uh, that's what we learn from this story. It matters to him about us. It struck me as I read through this, uh, this story this past week that he did not hear the wind. He didn't hear the uh, waves slap against the side of the boat. didn't hear the hail rattle on the deck. He didn't hear the shouts of the mariners as they called to each other in their time of peril. But when, when they called upon him for help, when, when they said, as Matthew puts us, Lord, save us, help us, he, he heard, he heard. And he immediately did something about it. There are three accounts of this story. Uh, one occurs in each of the so-called synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called synoptic because they look at at, at the incidents, uh, these incidents that took place in Jesus' life from different vantage points, and uh, they give evidence of being legitimate eyewitness reports because they're they're sometimes somewhat different. You have different uh, perspectives from which people viewed these. Uh, these events, which, by the way, is uh, one indication of their authenticity. If, if the reports were always precisely the same, you would think that they got their heads together and, and contrived this story, got their story straight, so they'd all say the same thing. But the fact that they're a little bit different uh, indicates that you know, this, this is simply what, what it purports to be. These are the reports of different people from different vantage points. Matthew says that at this point, he, he woke up and he said to them, Oh, you of, of little faith, why are you afraid? That wasn't a rebuke. He doesn't rebuke them. He rebukes the waves. They had a modicum of faith. They had had enough faith to get into the boat with Jesus. Not only uh, literally, but uh, figuratively, they were following him. They had seen him. Uh, in his uh, do miracles and they had heard his teaching and they had had an opportunity to observe him in various circumstances and see his and observe his peace and his his poise and his calm and they they had a measure of faith in him but uh, it was at this point a little faith they had forgotten their faith was fading and so he simply asked them the question why do you have no faith and then he he stood up and uh, wiped the sleep out of his eyes. And he looked around and he issued two commands. Now, it's not obvious from the English translation, but the words that he used in each case are just single verbs, commands. He said first to the wind, silence. And uh, then he spoke to the waves, be quiet. He said, now you have to understand that there are actually two miracles on this occasion. The first was uh, the, his manifestation of power over the winds. He spoke to the wind, and the wind immediately died down. Just a great calm. Now, as you know, if you've ever been, on, uh, uh, been out on a, a large body of water when the wind's been blowing, it takes a while for the waves to quiet down. Uh, so he addressed a word to the waves. He said, uh, enough of that, silence. And as though a giant hand was pressed down on the water, the lake became like a sea of glass. Some of you have had that experience. You've been out uh, on a lake in the middle of the night, and, and you've been able to see the moon and 
the stars reflected in the water, and, and uh, that was uh, their experience. There was an immediate calm. I thought when I read this passage this past week of John's description of the throne and the sea around the throne in heaven, John said it was it's like a sea of glass. There's no, uh, no waves, no anxiety, no fear in heaven. God is in total control. Now, after our Lord spoke to the elements, rebuked the elements, is the word that Matthew uses, then he speaks to the disciples and he says to them, he asks them the question, why are you so timid? The word that he uses is the same word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 1.7 when he says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Why are you cowardly? Why are you timid? He says, do you still... Have no faith. Having seen my control over the elements, do you still have no faith? And uh, then Luke tells us at this point, he he asked him another question. He said, where is your faith? Interesting question. Where is your faith? Is it in your ability as mariners? Is it it in the boat? Or is it in me? That's the question. Where is your faith? Now, I want to make one uh, further observation before we begin to talk about uh, the relationship of this passage to life today. I believe, personally, that Jesus was not speaking to the wind and the waves when he commanded them to be quiet. He was rather speaking to the spiritual forces behind the wind and the waves. Because the evil one was using the forces of nature to try to thwart and destroy our Lord Uh, our Lord himself and his mission. You you, uh, read the book of Revelation, which gives us a glimpse behind the scene, tells us what was happening in the the unseen spiritual world at this time. There there were efforts on the part of demons to try to destroy our Lord and destroy those who were his disciples. Uh, The dragon is described chasing the woman, trying to destroy the woman, Israel. When he can't destroy the woman, he tries to destroy the child, who's our Lord Jesus. When the child is snatched up to heaven, into heaven, he tries to destroy the offspring of the child. So Satan's efforts throughout our Lord's ministry here on earth were bent on trying to thwart and frustrate and destroy what God was doing through the Son. He was trying to put an end to God's uh, efforts to bring salvation to, uh, to this little land and, and, and to the rest of the world. We know from reading on into the next chapter that that the father had a divine appointment for the son. He wanted to meet the man who was possessed of the legion. We'll talk about him uh, next week. Uh, our Lord had perhaps one reason for wanting to get away. The father had another reason. He had a, an encounter. Uh, he, he made a reservation on the other side of, of the Sea of Galilee. It was a, an appointment, a person to be, uh, uh, to be uh, touched and, and healed. And Satan was aware of the father's efforts, and he was trained to shut the project down, and perhaps even destroy our Lord. So when our Lord speaks to the elements, he speaks to the spiritual elements. Behind the storm, he's addressing himself to the evil one. Hush, he said, that's enough of that. Just as you'd say to your dog, uh, be quiet, go to the corner, go to your room, or whatever. It's just an immediate response of, of obedience. Now what can we learn from this, uh, from this account Well, the first, I think, and most obvious lesson is that uh, we will encounter 
storms in life. There, there will be tempests. There will be difficult times. There are those times when we're terribly troubled and, and we're frightened by our trouble. Those times when we learn that our, that our children are in trouble in, in school or, or they're using drugs or we find out that our, we realize that our spouse is an alcoholic or we discover that we have cancer or we find out that our partner may be going to, to jail because of some illegal activity they've been involved in. These are all legitimate events. They, they happen to us. These are things that, that occur and, and they strike us un, unbidden and they, we, we don't know what to do with them. They, they frighten us out of our wits. Those times come and go. We can expect them. Our, our life will not always be easy and Placid. We'd like to be able to sail right through life without any storms, but that's, that's not reality. The storms come and go, and often they're extremely violent. There are those times when our mates tell us they're leaving. And uh, there, 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 there are other troubled uh, times in, in our life. Paul describes these times like this in 2 Timothy 2. He says, in the last days... There will be perilous times. Now, by the last days, he's not referring to some far-off distant era. We read those words and we think of the time immediately preceding the second coming of our Lord, and we apply that word to the what we call the Great Tribulation. But uh, Scripture uses that word, uh, that phrase, the last days, in, in a different way. Uh, for example, in, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, the writer says, God, who spoke through the prophets in various ways, has in these last days spoken unto us in a son. And uh, Peter, when he's delivering his address on the day of Pentecost and explaining the phenomenon, the phenomena that broke out on that day, he says, this is what Joel talked about, that in the last days, these uh, evidences, these will be the evidences, the signs. So the last days is the period between the first and second comings of Jesus. We're living in the last days. This is it. It's this present evil age in which we live. And uh, Paul describes those days in this way. He says people will be lovers of themselves. That sounds like uh, some of the people I know. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, uh, abusive, abusive to wives, abusive to uh, children disobedient to their parents. That is, they will resist uh, authority, ungrateful, unholy, without love. Some of you have read C.S. Lewis's uh, Four Loves. This is the love he defines as duck love, or it's the negated form of duck love. That is, people, you know, duck love is the sort of love you have for small, cuddly things like babies and little chickens and things like that. And uh, Paul says the time is coming when people won't even care about uh, small children and unborn infants. Uh, Unforgiving, slanderous, they'll stab you in the back. Without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, that is, they'll be reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He brackets this uh, list of evils with this idea that they'll love themselves rather than, than love God. That's the problem. This has been instigated by the evil one. The times become perilous because there are evil people around, and uh, these are people that are stirred up by the evil one 
to do us harm and mischief. And that's why, that's why these are dangerous times. The, the word that Paul uses for perilous is the word that's used of the man possessed of the legion who was so dangerous no one could even pass by the cave in which he lived. You know, he'd leap out of the cave on them and, and batter them and no one could control him. It's the nature of this age. Paul says, expect it. These are tough times. Life is difficult. Not uniformly difficult. But uh, from time to time, we're going to find that we're assailed by these storms of, that, that strike us, the tempests that stir up our life and shake us. Uh, as a matter of fact, Matthew even uses uh, uh, a little different word for the storm than Mark. Mark just refers to it as a gale. Matthew uh, uses the word for a shaking. Our word seismograph comes from this word. A seismograph is something that measures shaking. And uh, uh, Matthew's point seems to be that uh, this storm rattled the the ship and uh, rattled the nerves of the the disciples, caused a failure of of their nerve. And, and, And this is what we can expect. These times will strike us from time to time. We shouldn't be surprised. It's the nature of the age and in which we live. So that's the first thing I would, would want us to note is that uh, these storms are going to come and, and go. We shouldn't be uh, amazed when, when they occur. The second thing I want to say is that everybody gets afraid. Uh, it, it, that's a perfectly natural response to perilous times. When our lives are threatened as these disciples, we, we ought to be afraid. That's a normal human reaction to a life-threatening situation. These men were way over their heads, way out of their element. This was a, a storm beyond anything that they had ever experienced before, and, and their fear was something perfectly natural. The fact that they were afraid did not indicate that they had no faith. Jesus does not say you have no faith. What he observed is that they had a modicum of faith. They had a measure of faith. But for the moment, they had forgotten who Jesus was. They laid their faith aside. I think that's why he asked the question, where's your faith? Did you leave it back on, uh, back in Capernaum? Is your faith in the boat? If your faith's in the boat, you're in big trouble, and you know it. If your faith is in your ability as a mariner, then, then you, you've got a problem because you've already demonstrated that you're not adequate for this situation. But if your faith is in me, then the resources are there to face whatever you have to, to face. And... And that's what he wanted them to understand. He wanted to stir up that faith. He wanted to encourage them. He was not down on them because they were afraid. Do you understand that? He doesn't turn against us because we're, we're fearful. In those circumstances where we get rattled and shaken, what he wants to do is to remind us again of who he is. He wants to remind us that he's in the boat with us. That he's the master of, of, of the waves and the wind. That He's adequate for anything that, that we have to face. He doesn't rebuke us. He wants to encourage us. Yeah, I still remember those uh, nights when you wake up, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning, and you have this sudden sensation that somebody is in the room with you. And you look, and there standing by your bed is this little creature <laughs> with, you know, pajamas, Thumb in mouth, you know, bow wow under the arm. <clears throat> hey, Dad, there's a monster in my room. 
Say, oh, Brian, there are no monsters. Ah, there's a monster in my room. What does he look like? He's got big red eyes. He's got a beak for a mouth, big teeth. He's all slimy. He's dripping all over my carpet. <laughs> now, what do you do in a circumstance like that? Ah, crazy kid. There aren't any monsters. Go to bed! And yell at him. No. No, you, you, you don't do that. You drag yourself out of the sack and you go back in there and you say, Hey, Brian, turn the light on, Brian. There's no monster in here. He's under the bed. <laughs> so you pick up the dust ruffle. No, 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 Brian. There's no monster under the bed. He's invisible when the lights are on. <laughs> you go over in the corner and you say, Look, look, Brian. You say, Dripped all over the carpet. The carpet's dry. You know. There's no, there's no monster in your room. There is a monster in my room. And, uh, you know, the only, the only way to resolve the problem is to have him get in bed with you. Or you get in bed with him. I don't know how many sleepless nights I spend in bed with my kids. Nobody sleeps when kids are in, in the bed with you. You know what that's like. But see, that made all the difference in the world. The monster was still there, but uh, Dad was in the bed. And somehow there was a confidence in dad to face the monster. Now, if I actually saw a monster like that, I don't know what I'd do. I have to, I have to tell you another story about Brian. Uh, he used to do that all the time, and when he got a little bit older, he was probably in about the fourth grade, he became convinced that there was a badger in his room. Now, this is when we lived in California. Yeah, it might be true here, but not in California. He came into my room one night, and he said, there's a badger in my room, and I went in and turned on the light. We looked all over the place, no badger. And finally, I talked him into staying uh, in his room, and the next morning, I was so proud of him, and I went in there and and, uh, and congratulated him for spending the night. And, he, and I found out that he'd slept all night with his bat in the bed with him, and that's where he got his nickname, Batman. From then on, he was, <laughs> Brian has been Batman. But you, you see what I'm saying? When your children believe that something that fearsome is in the room with them, you don't rebuke them. You, you can't even convince them that that, that monster is not in the room. I mean, reason tells you that that monster is not there, but but that uh, reason doesn't uh, it doesn't weigh on a child. It's their imagination, you see, that that grips them. We're not totally rational people, let's face it. We aren't. We, we would like to think that we are. We would like to believe that once we're told a truth, we'll always believe it. It's like 2 plus 2. Once I get that one down, then every time I see 2 plus 2, I'll know it's 4. But life is not like that. I have to be reminded again and again and again because my emotions and my imagination all, always have a way of telling me what my mind says is true is not is not true. C.S. Lewis mentions that uh, once he was uh, having to undergo surgery and and he had a lot of confidence in his doctor and he had absolutely no uh, fear at all and he went into the operating room and they clamped this oxygen mask or this uh, mask over his nose to administer the anesthesia and he got this totally irrational fear that they were going to start cutting on him before he went under. And he realized at that point that uh, it was a totally irrational fear, and nevertheless it gripped him, and his heart began to race, and the adrenaline began to, to flow. And you see, that's the problem with us. We're not totally irrational. We're not totally rational. 
And we need to be reminded over and over and over again what these truths are, and that's what our Lord wants to do. When, when we begin to get afraid, He reminds us of the truth. And He uses those experiences to build our faith and our, and our confidence in Him. So, uh, what, uh, what storm are you experiencing today? I, I, I have no idea what it might be. I know what mine is, and, and I, I, I'm sure that, that most of you here have your own tempests. It may be a tempest in a teapot to someone else, but for you, it's very much like the experience of the disciples in the boat. You think you're going to go down. You think you're going to drown. You're afraid you're going. To, you're not going to make it. Perhaps this is the week that uh, that you you receive some some terribly discouraging news. You've been waiting for for something for the longest time, and and then you receive word that it, it, it's not going to come. It's not going to happen, and you you get terribly shaken by that. Well, I want to leave you with the words that, that a friend of mine used to use by way of application. Ray Stedman, when he taught on this passage, used to always conclude by saying, when those times come, remember that the boat won't sink and the storm won't last forever. Now, that's what we need to recall. When the storms strike, the boat will not sink and the storm will not last forever. Remember who you have in the boat. His word is good. You see, on this occasion, he said to the disciples, let's go across to the other side. He did not say, let's go out into the middle and sink. You had it, they had his word to go by. And we have his word that no matter what happens, the boat won't sink. And the storm won't last forever. I, I think the hymn writer summed it up well in this way. Jesus, Savior, pilot me over life's tempestuous sea. Unknown waves before me roll, hiding rocks and treacherous shoal. Chart and compass come from thee. Jesus, Savior, pilot me. As a mother stills her child, thou canst hush the oceans wild. Boisterous waves obey thy will. When thou sayest to them be still, wondrous sovereign of the sea, Jesus, Savior, pilot me. When at last I near the shore and the fearful breakers roar twixt me and the, and the peaceful rest, then while leaning on thy breast, may I hear thee say to me, Fear not, I will pilot thee. Let's pray. What a gracious Lord you are. You never reject us because we fail. You were not uh, angry with these men because they... Uh, we're unable to muster up the faith and courage on this, in this particular instance. You ministered to their fear. You understood their weakness and, uh, and you spoke to that fear. Lord, thank you for doing that for us. Thank you for, uh, for meeting with us in these times when everything seems to be falling apart and we discover that you're there with us through the trouble. You're in the boat and you assure us again that the boat will not sink and the storm will not last forever. I want to thank you for that gracious word. And whatever we fear this week, whether it's a marital problem or a personal health problem or some business decision that has to be made, or 
some concern we have with our children, whatever it may be, we know that you're in the boat with us and we can trust you. To give us the kind of help that we need, Lord, we want you to pilot us and to strengthen us in the storm. These things we ask in Jesus' name.